Hi, this is Dr. Meg Hayworth, holistic psychologist and nutrition strategist, and you're listening to Get Well Soon podcast series, the show that explores how to heal yourself with food and the power of the mind. Hi, everybody. It's Dr. Meg Hayworth here, founder of the Get Well Now Wellness Coaching Programs, celebrity chef, author, author, and speaker. And thank you so much for listening to this show. Please take a moment to leave a comment on iTunes about our show, and please share it with anyone whom you think may benefit from this conversation. So there's a ton of other shows for you on health and wellness with with thought leaders like J.J. Virgin on traumatic brain injuries, Chris Wark from Chris Beat Cancer on what everyone needs to know about cancer, Wynn Claybaugh, the owner of the Paul Mitchell Schools on the Healing Power of Being Nice, and a ton more shows just to help you get well. Um, Today, I have uh, a very special guest. I really feel like this is one of the most powerful interviews that I've done and um, definitely one of the most powerful men people that I've ever met. Um, My guest today is Sujo John. He's the founder of You Can Free Us. Um, It's an international humanitarian organization that's dedicated to the rescue and rehabilitation of human trafficking victims. And I can barely get through that without uh, getting choked up because it's a near and dear subject to me having been through sexual abuse and knowing the kind of abuse these women go through. Um, Sujo's fight against modern-day slavery has encouraged a network of global leaders to raise its voice against this evil of our times. You Can Free Us presently operates safe houses in India and Poland and runs awareness and prevention campaigns in North America, Asia, and Europe. Sujo holds a bachelor's degree in commerce and an MBA in business. He and his wife, Mary, and their children, Jeremy, Sophia, and Jaden, make their home in the Dallas area. Sujo, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Dr. Meg. So um, when you and I first started connecting on the phone, um, you told me the story of how you came to be here. Now, you're from India, right? Correct. I grew up in India. In fact, spent most of my life in that country. So I moved to America in February of 2001. And and people often ask me, why did you come here? And I tell them, I came here to chase adventure and prosperity. America is that place where dreams and dreamers collide. And that's what brought me to this great nation. Well, welcome. (laughs) We're so happy to have you. And you did, uh, you, you immediately got a job in New York. Um, and, and what were you working in? Well, I, you know, actually, I came to America with nothing much with me. I, I was raised in a middle class or upper middle class background. So I remember my dad saying, you're moving to America. What do you want? Uh, what kind of money do you want? Can I give you some money? And I, you know, I was married and wanted you to depend on my, my dad. So I said, no, I'm good. Honestly, I wasn't good. Mm-hmm. I left India with just $50 in my wallet and a credit card, a MasterCard. With your wife, in, right? With my wife, yeah. So I had $50 and a a credit card. And and that's how my journey started in America. So, yeah, of all the places, uh, we moved to New York City and uh, and I started looking for work. It was interesting. The first few days and weeks, nobody wanted to hire me because they all said, you got a good background, uh, you know, but Uh you don't have any U.S. work experience. But in a matter of a few weeks of having moved here, I find work uh, with a company called Network Plus, a telecommunications company Mm -hmm. on the 81st floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. Wow. And okay, 
let's look at the timeline here again. We're, we're talking early 2001. You came here in February. Correct. Um, so just seven months later. Now, your wife, she was also working. Correct. So she also finds work at the World Trade Center. She started working with Morgan Stanley on the 71st floor of the South Tower. Wow. So we both called the World Trade Center our workplace, and it was kind of very interesting. Uh, you know, before the tragedy, making our way into the building and, and completely being at off and being working there, that it was almost like that's where the world came to do business. Yeah. It was an incredible place of, of so much of commerce and industry happening at, at lightning speed. Wow. And you must have been literally on top of the world. <laughs> you know? I mean, literally, you're up in these towers looking at this incredible view. And you've just come to America and you're creating this life. And... Um, we all know what happened in, on September 11th. Can you tell us about what happened for you and for your wife that day? Sure. Uh, Dr. Meg, what had actually happened with me was I was doing well and I was rising up the corporate ladder, but, uh, but I, was, I would often feel that there was something more, something was missing. Mm-hmm. I was just chasing stuff. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, when you're an immigrant or even though you might have been born and raised here, often we reduce our life and our lifestyle to consumption and chasing stuff. And the more we consume, the more we want to consume. And But there's always that hole in your heart. And uh, there was a season in my life, even before 9-11, I'm looking for my purpose. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for why I'm here as such, for such a time as this. And yes. so, uh, and that was this quest. And I'll never forget, that was an interesting piece of my, of my conversation with myself often. The reason being, uh, beyond the fact that I was new to America, mm-hmm. everything was kind of new. You know, I had not been married for that long, and uh, so marriage was a new experience. Yeah. And then the most exciting thing, my wife was pregnant at that time, oh. and we were so looking forward to the birth of this ch- mm-hmm. child. That would yeah. change our life. And so I remember leaving home early that morning, um, uh, saying goodbye to my wife, who usually she would go to work with me, mm-hmm. but, but ever since she was pregnant, she would sleep longer and then join me in the towers. So I said goodbye to my wife, leave home in northern New Jersey, make my way into New York City. Mm-hmm. And it's a little past 7.30 that morning. I make my way to the 81st floor. And, and it started off as a clear, cloudless day. Yeah. But then everything was about to change forever. So I'm on the 81st floor, and, and that clear day, looking out of the windows, I get to see the glorious view mm-hmm. of the lady with the torch. And these thoughts are running through my mind. What am I doing with my life? Is life in America all about stuff and chasing stuff? Is it so all about interesting that you're ladder? thinking about that that very morning? Yes, Meg. You and know. I actually those thoughts I put it onto an email, mm-hmm. and I sent an email out to a friend of mine in New Jersey saying, "Tom, something's happening to me this morning," and I told him what had happened to me in the last six months of having moved to America. That I was I feel very blessed, but uh-huh. I'm just chasing stuff. But I feel there's a whole there's got to be something more than this. Wow. So I, I send hit at 8.05 in the morning, send an email out at 8.05 in the morning, and about 40 minutes or so, the world will change forever. So oh. it's, I want to take your audience that's listening to us to that moment, 8.46 in the morning. Uh, I'm on the 81st floor. Um, I'm sending some paperwork over by fax to our office in Philadelphia when I hear this incredible explosion. And this is American flight number 11 flying coast to coast, flying at 440 miles an hour. Uh, carrying 10,000 gallons of jet fuel. This plane had taken off from Boston Logan Airport. Uh, the destination was your city, Meg, uh, Los Angeles. But uh, minutes into its flight and takeoff, the plane was hijacked by Al-Qaeda terrorists, and the destination is New York City. The target is the World Trade Center. So the plane comes crashing into our tower. Uh, the plane struck several floors above us. 
but the angle at which the plane crashed in the building resulted that part of the wing of the plane tears in through my floor. Oh, my gosh. So, oh, what, wow. so it's right there in front of you. Correct. The building is shaking violently. Um, the glass is shattering around us. Fire breaks out around us because jet fuel has been dumped into our floor and everything around us is catching fire. As I look up, there's a huge crater. I can see 10, 15 floors directly above us. Uh, and as things are falling and collapsing around us, 28 of us in that office, our faces in that carpet, and we're thinking that this is it. We're not going to make it out of this building. And I'm thinking about my wife, my parents, and also thinking about the child that my wife is carrying, thinking I'll never see the child again. So we were there for a few minutes, and someone from our floor, he rallies us, and he says, hey, gang, stay calm. We've got to beat this fire. We've got to look for a way out of these burning towers. So the man who leads the charge, uh, you and our listeners today could Uh have probably heard the story. If you've heard the story of two men that carried a lady down a wheelchair, 68 flights, and both of those men worked with me, and this was one of them. He leads the charge, and we start following him, falling away towards the nearest stairwell. But before we could get to that stairwell, we had to cross the place where the elevators were. Mm-hmm. Now, the elevators were right in the middle of the towers. The jet fuel had come down the elevator shaft and balls of fire shooting at that place. So we oh, fall away God. to the fire, make our way into the stairwell, and uh, make the stairwell isn't too broad. It's good enough for us to be running down in two files. Hundreds, thousands of people joining us under that stairwell from all these floors. Oh, and I'm God. thinking to myself, uh, what if my wife's been delayed to work? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What if she's already in there? All these thoughts. And I'm reminded that she's pregnant, four months pregnant, going through a rough pregnancy. Yeah. And I'm saying, if she's made her way in, then there's no way she's going to come out. Um, and so I'm trying to call her through my cell phone. I borrow the phones of all the people running down the stairwell with me, but cell phones would not work. And uh, that's when we hear the other explosion. And some uh, in across America, especially in L.A., probably uh, they probably woke up to that uh, to that news about now the second plane, which most networks captured it live. This is a second plane crashing yeah. into the second tower. So we hear that loud boom. We knew something else had hit the building right next to us, yeah. but I can't reach my wife. We continued our way down, and I get to the 43rd or the 44th floor, and that's when I see this most amazing sight that I will never, ever forget. Um, now, all along, before I, I say that, as we were running down, we were wondering, what if our access is blocked at some level? But when we get to the 43rd, oh, wow. we see these firemen and policemen, <laughs> mm-hmm. one by one, making their way up. And we knew if these men were making their way into the building from the outside, there had to be a way out of those burning towers. Uh, we high five them uh, and uh, say, you guys are the real heroes. God be with you. Yeah. Uh, we had no idea then that these brave men uh, were literally walking up to their death. That would be the last time America would be seeing these incredible heroes. They wow. were going up. We were going down. And as we all know the story, hundreds of firemen and policemen, first responders uh, died that day. Jeez. And when I share my story, I often tell people that day, America and the world saw the worst form of evil. But yeah. what met that evil was was the American strength and character of people that live here, that there are men and women so willing to lay down their lives. Yeah. So others like me are around to be sharing our stories. So that's kind of the, the most amazing memory for me of that day, the picture of yeah. those men, you know, just, just valiant, brave American heroes. Amazing. And then once you got out of the towers, what happened next? So it took me an hour and 20 minutes to come down 81 floors. And I come to the lowest level, the concourse level, 
I'm still in the building, but I face the concourse, bodies and body parts, the engine of the plane and the fuselage burning there. And we were told, go down one more level uh, to, the, to the next level and then get out of these towers. So I make my way to the lowest level and I'm walking towards the south tower thinking I might find my wife. And in a way, that's when my story really begins. The ground begins to shake violently. It felt like it was an earthquake. Wow. The glass is shattering. I feel like I've been sucked into some kind of vacuum. This is the second tower collapsing around me. Oh and so in that moment, I just knew what was going to happen. I thought I was going to die. 15, 20 people with me. We huddled together. And uh, in that moment, I felt that I, we should all pray together. So we prayed for a few minutes. Wow. I challenged these people with me to pray. Yeah. And after 20 minutes, we all moved. And I'm lying there with my face flat on the ground, being burned in debris, soot glass, all kinds of stuff falling on me. Oh I thought God. I was going to die. But after, after a while, after 15, 20 minutes, I feel someone pull me. I feel a tug. I feel someone pull some part of my body. And I began to pull him. And as we got close to each other, I realized that this man was an FBI agent. He turns to me and says, I'm with the FBI. And uh, we both told each other that we were going to die here. We couldn't breathe. We were choking all the soot and the ash. Oh my gosh. But we held our hands together tight. And again, we said a prayer, thinking that will be our final prayer. Yeah. And something so miraculous happens, a red light flashing to the sun and the smoke. So I turned to this FBI agent and I said, that's the street level. We've got to get our way to that level. So we start crawling our way towards that light. It turns out it's a flashing light from an ambulance. That ambulance was crushed, but the light was spared. Oh and so, so we started making our way towards the light. And that's when... My story takes another turn. This man says, I got to go back, get more people. Oh. I said, let's go together. But he runs back saying he wanted to go and look for more people. And he runs towards the North Tower, which was a building I would work in. It was the first mm -hmm. building to get hit. But it, that building was still standing till then. But the ground shakes, another incredible explosion. Jeez. And this is the North Tower going down. Uh, this is a story of an incredible American hero. His name is Leonard Hayden, the only FBI agent to have died that day. Uh, he's left behind four children and a wife oh because he, he ran into the North Tower. The North Tower just collapsed, and he died in that in that implosion that day. Wow. So I'm out of the debris, but I've spent hours thinking my wife is dead. Uh, and unknown to me, she had spent hours thinking I was dead. Of course, and yeah. I've I mean, given up hope over her. Late that day, my cell phone rings for the very first time. And I, th and I thought at that moment it was someone else calling me with the news that your wife is gone. But when Lord. she said, oh, it is my wife. Oh. And what had happened to her was, you know, the trains go to the lowest level of the of the buildings, uh -huh. the E train especially that we would normally take. Uh, and she gets delayed. Some That train was delayed getting into the World Trade Center. So wow. that delay resulted that uh, she got in just after the North Towers hit. So they were not allowed to get into the World Trade Center. Oh, they pushed out. And when she gets out, she sees people jumping out of the building, bodies landing around her. And she sees a second plane crash into uh, the her tower right in front of her eyes. And the crazy part of my story is the night before, mm -hmm. uh, I as she was trying to sleep, I said, we need to talk about something. She's like, we'll talk about it later. I said, no, we need to have a conversation about something that we've never talked about. Uh -huh. uh, we got to do it now. And she's like, what is it? I said, it's called death. What do you mean death? Wow. I said, well, I signed up a life insurance policy. And so if I were to die... Uh, I think it's important for you to know this, that uh, this is the money you're going to get. This is who you need to call. Right. And that was my last conversation, Meg, with real conversation with her, September 10th night. Wow. And we, and we went to bed. It's the really next day, interesting how, you know, the, the 
a piece of you, it's like a piece of you knew this was going to be happening. You sent that email to your friend. You had that conversation with your wife. You know, it's that that part of us that um, is, you know, going ahead of us. I, I always say, you know, it's the soul that knows. Your soul is just waiting for your personality to catch up to what it already knows. So it's like you just knew on some level that this experience was about to happen and you were preparing in a way. So um, that's a powerful, powerful story. And and I think listeners, you know, to, to think about, you know, when you have those hunches or those um, dreams or visions or thoughts that, you know, something's really pressing when it doesn't seem like it should be. You know, it's like pay attention right. well, to that, uh, you know. It's yeah, powerful. you're so You know, sometimes people have just a, a delay somewhere here or there, just getting stuck in traffic or, uh, you know, they went back home to, to pick something else and that short delay, uh, you know, resulted in, in something crazy happening. And yeah. I'm sure those listening can say that, you know. You know, we see wrecks happening when we drive, right? What if we were to be like 30 seconds, you know, ahead mm-hmm. of, of, of the accident? Probably you and I could have got caught up in that wreck. So, yeah, these things don't happen, I believe, by accident. And it's so important to be in tune with the spirit world. And that's when you really hear. And for those who who believe in in, 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 in being and the fact that we are spiritual beings, I I, I personally am. I really have a faith in in, in Jesus. And so I I have that conversation with him. And I often feel that that's what sometimes prepares us for for things in life. But, again, you, you don't always see the big picture. No, and, <laughs> no. And like you, you, said, you had a, quite a, a picture ahead of you that you, you couldn't have seen that you never would have guessed, I would imagine. Right. So, yeah. So, so you get out of the, the Twin Towers. You, you, you find right. out that your wife is living. Um, and, uh, but when did you actually reunite? I mean, how? Yeah, how, late that day. We told each other where we could meet. Mm-hmm. And it was by Jacob's Javits Center on 46th. Uh, street and 11th Avenue and for those familiar with New York City uh-huh. that's why this massive convention center it's on the Hudson so almost all of downtown Manhattan as you know was evacuated and roads and tunnels and bridges were all closed uh, the waterway was the only way to get out and so we told each other to, that we would meet each other there it was an amazing moment as we meet each other but at that moment as we were reunited there would be hundreds of people seeing, seeing me in that state plastered with soot and ash they would all, they would draw their wallets and show me pictures of their wives, friends, co-workers, and they would say, did you see them? And I would say oh. there were 50,000 people that worked in these towers. But that was a sense of desperation and hopelessness oh, that people God. were going through that day, the day that literally changed America and the world forever. It really absolutely did. So going forward um, with your wife and and she's pregnant, and you know you guys have both been exposed to major toxins. I mean, the the fact that you lived through breathing in what you breathed in during that uh, is just insane. So, um, so uh, what happened with the pregnancy? I mean, was that at risk? Yeah, it was a very high risk pregnancy, and we were told to actually abort the baby. But we when we when we reconnected with that with our doctor, we felt that. The doctor said there was a heartbeat, and that was good enough for us. So we decided to, to uh, you know, my faith would not allow me to do anything like that. So there yeah. was absolutely no doubt what we needed to do. We were going to have the baby, no, regardless. And so, um, and so we're so excited that you know, in, in a few months, 
March of next year, our son was born. He's a very healthy, athletic kid. Yay. And, and <laughs> not at all affected by any of that trauma that my wife experienced or things that she personally inhaled that day. So it was an amazing, miraculous story of, in a way, three lives were spared that day. Wow, absolutely. And it's, it's really amazing what happened for, for all three of you. And then also going forward, so you knew that you needed to do something of value. You You're soul was already telling you you needed to do something more valuable than chasing stuff. So what led you to uh, found You Can Free Us? Great question, Meg. So what happened is post 9-11 experience, and by the way, let me just make a statement. Mm -hmm. We all have stories, and today people are listening to my story, and I just shared a story about a building that collapsed around me. But we all have mountaintops and valley experience in our life, and something in someone's life that's listening to me has died. Something has yeah. come to an end. Yeah. And in those moments, whether it's good moments or bad moments, especially a valley moment, uh, you know, you could get bitter at what happened, yep. or you could get better. So, <laughs> I love uh, that. You uh, get bitter or better. Yeah, it's um, interesting, right, how yeah. those words are spelled. So it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a shift. It's a shift of how you want to look at your life. It's a shift in how do, what do you want to get out of this. Now, obviously, yeah. we need time to process and mourn if things have died or of things, you know, this, that's all right to, to, to do that introspection. But I think even out of the tragedies of our life, uh, newness can, can spring out. I mean, a seed, when it falls in the ground, it has to die. Yeah. And, and so when it dies, something, something comes out of that. And so I just want your audience to be mindful of that. Uh, when things, bitter things happen, when life takes a different turn, uh, there could be beauty that can come out of ashes. Mm-hmm. Joy can come out of our, our sadness. And that's my story. Yeah. So I, I knew that I didn't want to go back to corporate America anymore mm-hmm. the way it was because for me it was just a mad race, uh, you know, to go higher and higher, make more money. And I saw that day what, you know, that when you die, you're going to leave everything behind. And I started thinking about legacy really hard. Till then, I was very focused on success. And I began to understand the difference truly between success and legacy. Uh-huh. Success is stuff. Legacy is lives you touch. Mm-hmm. And if I had died that day, I, you know, my family would obviously miss me. A few friends would miss me. But, you know, what impact did I have on this world? Right, I was right. in a way, very selfish life. And, and I felt like I started thinking and processing that. And then... Media ran us my story, all kinds of media across America and the world ran our story. Sure. And then opportunities started opening up for me to come and speak. Mm-hmm. There was a story of hope. Uh, people said, this guy has a story of hope. There's so much of brokenness in America and pain. Mm-hmm. And so I started traveling with the story. And as I started traveling, I began to realize that the world looks so totally broken. And yeah. it's so easy to slip back and say, what can we do? And I've always uh, mm-hmm. felt that sometimes all you need to do is show up. The yeah, power of presence. So true. <laughs> if you show up, uh, you know, there would be something that you'll figure out what you can do to be to be part of the solution, not add on to the problem. Yeah. So initially started with me going and starting medical projects, water wells, schools in different parts of the world. Mm-hmm. But then uh, in 2008-9, all I start hearing around and everywhere I go is on modern-day slavery or human trafficking. Yeah. And it's crazy, right? Sometimes when we're supposed to be in, involved in something – any way you turn, yeah. this is here. So it started happening all over. And I'm like, okay, why is this happening to me? Everywhere I turn, this is a conversation. And then I was back in a project in the slum schools that I was helping in India, raising funds and developing that. And uh, someone said, you need to come and see the red light district. And I'm saying, as a man, I've never been. I don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I said, well, let me buy flowers. And I'm aware of a, of a great organization called the Dream Center in L.A. Uh-huh. And I 
guys who run that, and I've heard their story, how they take roses into the red light district to these girls. So I bought hundreds of roses oh, and wow. into the red light district and started handing it these women. And as I walked into this place, I realized it was a street a mile and a half in length, and this is New Delhi, India, the capital city, uh-huh. a, a street mile and a half in length, and 37,000 sex workers <gasps> live and, and uh, work oh, in one that's a staggering number of women. Uh, staggering, and, and uh, in fact, they're kept in these cells, three feet by six feet, with no ventilation. And I began to hear the stories as we handed out those oh roads, that they are forced to see up to 30 men a single day, or 40 men a single day. Their bodies are sold for $1.50. And <sighs> I stood there and thinking, why am I here? And I almost I hear this whisper, that uh, I've experienced something, I've been given something, and that's what I'm supposed to give back. And I went back to my experience of 9-11, how I was trapped in the debris, thinking I would never get But here came this FBI agent who pulled me out, and he did it at a cost. He runs back, and he died. He saved life and gave up his own. And I felt like that is life. Like, life has to continue. You know, you get, you give back. And every that's what we call the circle of life. It goes on and on. Yeah. And I felt that was my calling. In a strange way, I could I, now identify with these women. You know, and post 9-11, I'm very uh, claustrophobic. Until uh-huh. uh, till then, I wasn't. But now, I, I, I just don't like being in small spaces. There have to be windows, and there have to be big windows. And so it was a very difficult experience for me the first time in the red light district, and even now when I go back. But that moment, it's almost like that, that, that problem that I have turned out into a blessing because I could understand what these women are going through. Yeah. And I had no idea what we needed to do, but I felt like if I've seen something, I got to be part of the solution. So that's when we came back and started You Can Free Us, mm-hmm. uh, which is now all about rescuing women, rehabilitating them, and then helping them to reenter society. So, you know, this, these women are, they're literally in cages. They're being, they're trapped. They're being abused all day long. That's like their only purpose. So there's no love getting in to these women. And I'm sure, like all of us, their hearts are filled with love, but it's just, it's not something that they can even really access in that kind of a situation. So uh, how in the world do you, you you get these women out of that? Or, you know, maybe you can't even really say because it's, <laughs> I'm sure it's dangerous to, to do yeah, what it you're is. doing. Yeah, you know, I tell people, just living is risky. Yeah, nope. so true. I mean, you know, nope. from 9-11, I was struck by yeah. lightning. So, I mean, <laughs> just on a walk on the beach one day. So, you just you just don't know. <laughs> so, if living is risky, like, man, yeah. you got the experience, I got the experience, and those listening to us have the experience. And I tell people, why don't we just do some crazy, risky, radical things exactly. that will actually do some good on this earth? And so, I, I look at it this way. It's very risky for our staff, obviously, that works in the red light district that does a rescue. We partner with the law enforcement. We do our own rescue at times, but it doesn't happen with you know us going with guns blazing and extracting those girls. It takes a long time to do the investigation, to do the research, and convincing these girls, uh, and then planning the exit strategy. Uh, the reason it's hard to convince them is because often when we are there, the pimps and the traffickers are all around these girls. Right. And B, there have been people that have come to them and said, we'll rescue you, we'll take you, and often it's customers that they, some will come and promise them love and say, we'll try to pull you out. And what happens to them is probably that same night, they are, they are sold in another brothel. And so oh they gosh. have given up hope and they've been abused, uh, right. broken 
seem broken promises. And so it takes a while. But yeah, because they don't made, they don't trust anybody, you know. They so, don't trust anybody. And but you've got to build some kind of trust with them. And this is an interesting thing for people to think about for listeners is is um, when you get trapped in a situation like that, you want nothing more than to be out of that situation. Yet at the same time, the way out is, uh, it's scary because you, you don't know who to trust, what, which way to go. And so I think, you know, I've, I've had people, conversations about trafficking with people before. And one person said to me, it's like, well, they can just leave anytime they want. <laughs> like, no, they can't. No, and they here can't. in this country, California is horrible with it. I mean, they bring uh, girls from the Midwest out to Hollywood, promising them um, screen time. You're going to be in the movies. You're going to be a model, all of this. And then they drug them. They... Um, emotionally abuse them um, and and enforce them into stripping and into pornography into uh, the, you know the whole sex trade here so this is happening all over the world this isn't this isn't a new thing it's been going on for a long long time but um, what you're doing is so powerful uh, because you're helping to free people from literal cages and um, each of us has our own cage that we put ourselves in. And Correct. so I'm hoping that if they hear your story and hear what these women are doing and what you're doing to help to, to rehabilitate them, because you're not, you're, you're providing a solution for a huge problem. Um, then, you know, start thinking about what cage are you in? Are you in a cage of illness, you know, where you're, all you're doing is focusing on that, you know, let yourself out of that cage. So, Anyway, I just kind of want to get listeners, when we're talking about getting well, freeing yourself from whatever cage you're in. And this, what you're doing is very complicated. It's, you know, very multi-layered and very difficult. So, okay, so you get the woman out, and then what happens next? So they come to our safe houses. And by the way, our work is not just in India. Mm-hmm. In India, we are now in Mumbai. And, you know, earlier I told you the first red light district was 37,000 workers. How about this, Meg? One of the biggest places where we work in Mumbai, that's, that place has 200,000 girls. Oh, my gosh. And that's the primary place where we work. So we rescue them, take them to our safe houses. And in our safe houses is where where almost everything happens. Their physical healing, mm-hmm. because a lot of them, uh, you know, body being abused, forced to see 30 to 40 men. You can only imagine the toll they would have taken on their bodies physically. Yeah. Uh, they might have STDs, HIV, they get medical treatment, and then uh, the emotional uh, uh, healing begins where they get counselors. They get uh, We do art therapy with them, group therapy, all kinds of therapies to kind of help them heal. And then we have a program called the Life Skills Training. So we identify what they're wired for and so that we can prepare them for society. And so we tell these girls, no matter what you want to do, you can chase your dreams here. And we don't just throw whole sewing machines and say, everybody has to do this. So we have girls who have, uh, we found the work at the American Embassy in India. They, they are ones that go into fashion designing. A lot of them go back to school. A lot of them go back to college. They, we have girls that have gone to nursing programs. Yeah. So they do all kinds of stuff. And so we have CSI initiatives with hospitality uh, industries, so corporations like, uh, like Four Seasons, Western Hotels. They hire our girls. So the goal is how does this girl uh, earn a skill set which can, uh, which, so she can make a decent living? Right. And, she can re-enter society. So the whole process, on a minimum, it takes two years. It's long-term care. Sure. So 
You know, our experience of doing this for many years teaches us that short-term care for those who've been through incredible trauma all these years mm-hmm. doesn't really do much good. They really need a long-term care. So that's what we focus on. So we are in India, but we're doing the same thing in Europe. We have mm-hmm. a safe house in Poland, in Warsaw, where we're rescuing girls who are trafficked in, in, from Eastern European countries or Poland, uh, through Poland into other parts of Europe. And like what you said earlier about how girls are brought to L.A., they're told in Eastern European countries, come with us to... Uh, come with us to uh, to Poland. We'll take you to Italy, Germany, and there'll be a better life. But unfortunately, they're just about to be sold. So that's the story of modern-day slavery. And what really moves me, and I'm sure moves almost everyone who'll be familiar with these statistics I'm about to share, is there's 40-plus million people caught up in slavery right now, more people than the, than the heights of the transatlantic slave trade. That's almost like one and a half the size of the whole state of Texas. And so this is the evil of our times. In 2017, no human being needs to be locked up in a cell and and completely stripped of every human dignity and all human rights. And so uh, this is the mandate that that we carry, and I'm sure many of you carry. We all value our own personal freedom. And I think for those of us that have that, we have a responsibility to pass that on to others in our world, and not just in Europe or Asia, but also in America. This is a huge problem in America. It's a big problem in California, like you said. California yeah. ranks number one in the nation yeah. in, in human trafficking. So it is a, a problem of our times that everyone can engage at some level so that it can be said that, um, you know, that in our generation, we did something to end this evil. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what strikes me, too, is that on the other end of this is we're, you know, we're looking at the, the men who consume this way of life. Um, we're looking at the traffickers too. I mean, like, what what can be done? I mean, it's, that's a, a a big problem there. Great. You know, educating men on how. I mean, I'm sure you've thought this through. <laughs> yes, we actually are working on a curriculum right now just to identify that. So the the that's a great thing you suggested, Meg. Uh, this is a demand and supply issue. So if the demand comes from men, and so the supply is there, so traffickers will lure girls because there's money to be made. And by the way, mm-hmm. it's a $150 billion industry. Uh, there's a lot of money to be made, and that is what uh, makes these traffickers. And it's low risk. So if you make that kind of money with low risk, uh, you know, there will be people that will engage in this. So uh, the way to change this is, yes, the rescue rehabilitation, but prevention mm-hmm. is the greatest way to stop it. So I challenge people everywhere I go, uh, if you have boys, raise boys that will, that will learn how to treat women, and um, boys in, across the world have to be taught that they cannot win, buy women and right. they should not be buying sex. If you raise a generation of boys that will grow up as healthy male, uh, mm-hmm. males who will not buy women, who will not disrespect women, right. and I think that goes a long way. That will have an incredible effect in seeing these trafficking numbers come down. But it has to take, the, the conversation has to start at home. It has to start, start with home with parents, um, you know, showing that, uh, lived out in their home and then challenging their boys to respect women. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's sort of jarring the empathy of boys, you know, because if, if uh, that's one of the biggest problems with the whole sex industry anyway is that it's they become complete objects. They're not real people. And that person that is being trafficked is a real person. They have a heart. They have a soul. They have, you know, they have a parent who probably, you know, was never there for them, and that's part of how they ended up in there in the first place. But 
you know, humanizing these women yeah. because they are human beings. They are Correct. souls. They are. Correct. And the media has a responsibility, you know, sadly, in our culture, in our media. Mm-hmm. I mean, women have been objectified. I'm not talking just about obviously the pornography industry has a, should take a big responsibility yeah. because studies done how pornography has fueled human trafficking. You know, uh, victims these these girls in the red light district. Uh, you know, once the trafficker has them, he can make more money making porn out of them. There are also kids and young women who are kidnapped just for the purposes of pornography. So there's that aspect to it, and and how when men watch this, you know, what gets into their head about how they view women and how they view sex. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot, or in the red light district, people who watch pornography and come, they force things or ask these girls to give services that they see on pornography. There is that, that, <sighs> that connection. But beyond just pornography, just the way in our culture, whether it's movies or, or soaps, and just the way, uh, you know, in our present culture in America, how women are objectified, whether it's music videos, so the music industry, you know, movies and television, I think we all have to relook at this and have yeah. take responsibility and say we got we to gotta cast a better uh, image about what manhood looks like yeah. and what, also what women ought to be. And so that responsibility, that conversation has to start at home. It has to start where people will mentor. We're living in among a, a generation often called the fatherless. The fathers are not there. And yeah. so there's got to be some men that will take their responsibility in society and mentor young guys. And likewise, women have to re- re- mentor younger girls. And we all have that mentor responsibility to, to, to our fellow neighbor in America, and I think that will go a long way. Yeah, absolutely. So how can people get involved with what you're doing? Hey, they can, they can find us online. Our website is youcanfree.us. Youcanfree.us. Our, our name of our nonprofit is You Can Free Us Foundation, but they can also find us on social media, You Can Free Us. Y O U C A N F R E E U S. So we often, um, you know, we're always looking for ideas for people to come and to and share with us about how they can. Uh, everyone's wired in a very unique way. You know, some can yeah. volunteer, some can give. Um, you know, financial donations are something that really keeps us going. We are always uh, grateful for people that that would uh, that would give. But I, I know giving is very personal, and so I always like to get to know the people. And if people want to reach out to us, they can find me online too and get to know more about us and what we do. And then, and then maybe if they have a heart, they can and give to this work. Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, this is um, something that we're working on together is, is uh, my coming to India to help Yes. With uh, teaching, really loving the women, <laughs> loving them That's and teaching right. them self love. That's really what it'll come you know, down and to. For your audience, I've just had such an incredible uh, privilege in the last few weeks getting to know Meg on the phone and her heart for this cause. So I told her, come to India. And I said, whatever it takes, come to India and, and, uh, and come in with your skill sets because these girls that we have in India, they could really benefit from what Meg does with her work here in America. And this kind of skill set you don't get in India. So if Meg, if you can come to India and, and share that and teach, that will be fantastic. And I and I personally thank you for your passion for this cause and, and putting a spotlight on this problem, truly the problem of our generation. Yeah, yeah, it's it's massive. And God bless you for doing what you're doing to help these women and uh and, and to help men too, you know, generations Correct. of men going forward what it looks like to be a healthy man, to you know, to be strong and caring and loving and protective of women um, rather than tearing them down. And that's exactly what trafficking does. It's just it pummels them into nothingness. And it's just, it's an atrocity. And uh, thank you. 
so much for doing your work. It's very powerful. Thank you. We're all in this together. So, Meg, I consider you as a partner in this work and look forward to connecting with your other friends. And those even watching this, if they have a heart for this fight, join us. And that's my, I, I feel that's my primary calling in life to, to get people to get act, to activate them so that together we can make a difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on the Thanks. show. You have one of the most powerful stories and missions. Um, you know, it's like your mission is as powerful as your story that got you there, you know? Thank you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, thank you so much. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening to Get Well Soon podcast series. Please share the show with as many people as you think may benefit. Um, and leave a comment on iTunes about the show for us. We would love to hear from you. Um, and, uh and of course, all the other shows are on my blog at meghayworth.com. And um, thank you again to Sujo John for um, giving his heart and soul to uh, helping women be freed from trafficking and, uh, um, and from the pain of that kind of life that they've been living. So uh, I'm just so excited to uh, be able to put this out into the world. All right. Thanks, all. Thanks everyone. For more information, go to meghayworth.com to sign up for our email list, get your free copy of five anti-inflammatory on-the-go lunch recipes, and access to our private Facebook community. Thank you so much for listening.